Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Tara McMullen. Excited to talk to you today, Tara. Um, You have done so much. Uh, You've been creating online for more than a decade, maybe close to two decades, um, You're a host of a podcast, What Works. You are a co-founder of a podcast production agency. And you've also closely studied small business owners, probably people like me, solopreneurs, creators, um, wanderers of the internet for many years. And in addition to that, you've also recently written about how you've come out as autistic publicly and what that means for your relationship to work in the workplace in general. I think it will be a really interesting lens just to talk about um, how we think about work more broadly. But welcome to the podcast, Tara. Well, thank you. I am so glad to be with you and very looking forward to talking about these things. Incredible. So a place I often start on this podcast is with the stories we grow up with. And many people have different stories they grew up with about what they are supposed to be doing. Um, Almost everyone in every culture I've talked to has a story. So what stories around work or what you were supposed to be doing as an adult did you grow up with? Yeah, I love this question. So I think the main story that I grew up with around work was that I could do what I loved for a living and that I didn't have to make a lot of money doing it. And my brain, as I think is true for a lot of people, interpreted that as you can do what you love for a living, which is not going to make you much money, (laughs) right? And so money, I, I was more focused on doing something that I really enjoyed, something that I was very interested in, something I found really engaging, way more than thinking about the money piece of it. And so, uh, you know, like so many people, I think in my generation, uh, went and got a humanities degree that I could do absolutely nothing with uh, career wise. I don't regret that decision at all. It was it's awesome. Um, I love my educational background. But when I left school, I didn't know how to navigate the world of work. I didn't know how to go out and find a career that wasn't just more learning, um, which is also a wonderful thing. <laughs> but I, I just wasn't prepared. You know, I come from um, what I would now call a working class background. My mother worked for herself as a seamstress. So I had this model of extreme flexibility and ownership but within the context of making very, very, very little money per year. Um, So that taught me something as well. That was a story that I was working with. And then my dad was a cop, and that was was work that he really loved as well. Um, But it wasn't like creative work. It wasn't passion work. It wasn't... um, it wasn't something that I kind of aspired to myself. And so that was kind of a, not a, a negative role model, but a, um, a modeling of a different type of career that I knew I didn't really want. So yeah, so most of my stories around work have to do with balancing this idea of doing what you love versus making money. And I think that's still very much a story that people are unraveling. Um, but yeah, that it really, 
it shaped or didn't shape my early career. And I've spent the last almost decade and a half now kind of unpacking that particular story so that I don't bring it into my business or into my own self-employment in a way that doesn't serve me. It's easy to carry these scripts. I, I know so many people have internalized the idea that work, especially if you're going to make money, has to entail some sort of suffering. Mm-hmm. So then the inverse script of that is if you're actually liking what you do, you shouldn't expect to be paid for that. Um, do you have any moments early on in any of your businesses where you had to sort of reframe that or start to think in different ways? Yeah, I mean, just very early on, so much of it was kind of identifying what was a reasonable amount of money to make in the first place. Like, I would say that because of my background, my expectation of what I was going to earn was extremely low, right? Like, I thought, oh, I'm a, I'm a religion major. I, the best I'm going to do is, like, $35,000 a year, right? I didn't have any idea of what a professional salary could look like. I didn't know when I started a business what that could look like. And so a lot of the reprogramming early on was just, no, what does it actually take to live a decent life? What does that actually cost in America, in this economy? And figuring out how to do that, doing things that I enjoyed. Um, and so that was sort of what the, the structure, restructuring was. It was almost a case of changing my expectation around money in the first place and then sort of reverse engineering the what does that work look like from there. Money beliefs are so deep. It's uh, my, <laughs> so my, deep. my wife is Taiwanese, uh, so we have like two radically different economic systems and like I realized how much our ideas of like what we're supposed to make is basically just tied to what basically jobs pay in your country Mm -hmm. or the industries you're a part of or like the family you grew up on. And she had this script of, well, I'm Taiwanese. Like I can't charge more than this. And I think the interesting thing now is the internet is basically making that not true anymore, where you can just compete on the open market now. Yeah, absolutely. I Yeah, I think that sort of the leveling of wages and the leveling of what certain work is worth globally is a really interesting trend to sort of keep one's eye on over the next 10 years or so. So when did you make the shift from maybe defining yourself as somebody that was going to do what they love Um, or at least carve out kind of what your mother had and a humanities major. Maybe you had a narrative of, okay, I can't expect to make a lot of money to sort of seeing yourself as an entrepreneur. Yeah. So when I started my business, which I'm putting in air quotes for (laughs) listeners, um, I didn't really know I was starting a business. I started a blog. It was back when the dominant way that people made money through blogging was advertising. And my goal was to basically make some money on the side. I was at home with a newborn baby (laughs) and I just wanted, I wanted some sort of outlet and I wanted that outlet to produce some revenue. Um, Although I wouldn't have spoken about it in those terms at that point because I didn't know to speak in terms like that. Um, But really quickly, within that first year, I started to recognize what the potential could be for earning. And by the end of that year, I had had a month where I brought in more revenue than I had made in my previous full-time job in a year. And it was was not a ton of money, $28,000. But to do it in a month as opposed to a year was a pretty eye-opening experience. And I think that's probably the point where I started to ask some much bigger questions about what am I really doing here? What am I building? How am I going to go about this? Um, What is the sort of vision that I have for where this could go? What am I interested in exploring as an entrepreneur? Um, And that's when things really started to ramp up. And I really started to see myself then as going from a sort of an either or framework, either doing work I love 
or making money to a both and framework. I can do work I love and make good money. Um, and I can do it ethically. And, um, and that's what I'm going to go after. That's what I'm going to look for. So that's how I started building things out. And that happened probably within the first, um, well, that, that sort of inflection point happened in that first year. But by the end of the second year, I was just blown away by the possibilities that were in front of me. Yeah. In this, was this the early 2000s, I think, or uh, it was, was the late 2000s, so t- 2009. Creating online. Because you, yeah. you said you did some creating online, I think, in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a Zanga account in 2003. That was my very, very first <laughs> blog. And oh, how I dream about the if, <laughs> you know, the if only, if I would have only kept blogging there, <laughs> then um, I think I would have had a very different early adult experience. <laughs> but, but I'm glad I got back to it when I did. And it was still pretty early, relatively speaking, in the, in the online business space anyway. Writing for me has been consistently showing up in my life, but it wasn't until I was like 35 years old that I sort of connected the dots. I was like, oh, writing is here all the time. Um, <laughs> did, you, did, did you have a similar uh, aha or did you kind of always know that writing was a core part of what you should be doing? It's such a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me this before. So I have a very distinct, I have a, I have a number of very distinct memories when it comes to writing and sort of understanding my identity as a writer. The first one was in 10th grade when uh, we, the class, I was in, you know, honors English and our class was tasked with writing um, some sort of paper. And we had this notoriously hard teacher and he sent back or he gave us back our papers and he he would just stood up in the front of the room absolutely disgusted with us like you people have never learned how to write you don't know what a thesis <laughs> statement is I, and this is you know I just I can remember sitting in that class like I can feel myself at that desk with him in front of the chalkboard just being disgusted But he broke down for us at that point. This is what a thesis statement is. This is how you structure a paper. All of those basic things that I would like to think we all learn in middle school or high school. But what I've realized is that we absolutely do not. Um, So that was that was sort of the first place where I was like, I want to do this right. And probably part of it was people pleasing. Like I wanted to to get on the good side of the really hard teacher because that's who I am. Um, but, but it was, I was drawn in to what he was teaching in a way that I don't think anyone else in the class was. Um, and then later in college, there was another, uh, college is when I started to enjoy writing more when I realized that, you know, banging out 500 words, it's just like not a big deal or banging out five page, a five page report. It's just, it's fun. Like, let's do this. Um, I still didn't think about writing as a career though. Um, but there was another class, uh, with a professor, this time a professor that I absolutely loved one of my advisors and it was a film and religion class. And again, it was a sort of a general studies class, so there were lots of non-majors in the class, lots of people who were not familiar with the kind of thinking that we were doing in that particular class. And um, we had to turn in a paper, and he turned them back to us after he'd graded them, absolutely disgusted with everybody's paper except for mine, which he read uh, the thesis statement of as an example to the rest of the class. And that is the moment I first started thinking to myself, oh, I'm good at this writing thing. I, I am a writer. Um, and then, you know, taking up blogging, doing it professionally for years and years now in, in one capacity or another has really helped to form that identity. So I would say it's been since I was 20 years old or so that I had that sort of identity. Uh, but it's only been in the last couple of years where I'm like, no, writing is basically my career and that's what I want it to be. And I got to figure out what I'm going to do to pursue that because it actually looks different than what I had been pursuing uh, as an entrepreneur to that point. Yeah, it's it's interesting how writing has become so central. I mean, the internet has just 
given almost anyone who has ideas or expertise or perspectives to share the widest possible audience. Did you have a sense of the the scale of this when you were writing early on, or was it still pretty nascent? I mean, I know the early blog days. I was like a I was a Google Reader person, but I was not really contributing. Yeah. I would say that while I did not grasp the scale or had any had any vision for how things would grow, I do remember that in that initial foray in blogging, I was reaching people I didn't know and they were commenting and we were having conversations. And that, you know, as a 19, 20 year old way back in 2003, so like almost 20 years ago now, that was a huge aha moment. Just that, you know, okay, this internet thing, I have loved it for a very long time, but now I can talk to people I don't know. And and what I'm thinking about is something that they're thinking about, and then we could think about it together. So so that that piece was a bit of an aha moment. But in terms of like recognizing where blogging would go, what social media would be become, because this is, you know, this is pre-Facebook. Um that that was not something that was on my radar. I I cannot um, I cannot f- fake any prescience on that one. Yeah, and it's evolved so much. Uh, I was looking back in your bio, and it it seems like you've done like a number of different podcasts, a number of different courses. You've done stuff on your own. You've done stuff on platforms like Creative Live. Was there an organizing? principle for you in terms of how you were approaching everything starting then? Or have you just sort of evolved? um, Has the ecosystems evolved too? I, I imagine it's a mix of both. Yeah, I would say it's a mix of both. Definitely coming down harder on the side of just figuring it out as I go. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Yeah, but I think one of the kind of organizing questions in my life in general is trying to figure out why people do the things that they do and what what sort of underlying beliefs or worldview contributes to that behavior. And that is what ties my religion degree to what I do now. It's what ties my interests in sociology and politics and economics to what I do now. It's what... Um, it's definitely what I hung my hat on in terms of a marketer or someone who is teaching marketing is like, I can, I, I can peel back these layers and, and show someone how to think from someone else's perspective. You know, you, if you know this, this, and this about them, well then let's kind of craft that worldview and, and kind of understand what their needs might be, what their desires might be, what their pain points might be. Um, and so that that question, um, and it, it comes all the way straight through to the book that's coming out in November as well, is it's really around this worldview question and the the quest to understand why people do what they do. And I know you want to talk about autism as well, but I think it's a huge part of, it's a huge strength of mine as an autistic person to take that analytical of a perspective around uh, understanding people because understanding people does not come naturally to me. And so really having to analyze worldview and belief system and action behavioral, um, the, the behavioral pieces of the puzzle that is, it's necessary for me, which in some ways is a, is a weakness but in a lot of ways in terms of thinking about teaching, thinking about writing, thinking about coaching, that's a real strength for me. And it's something that not everyone does. Yeah, you you wrote that because of autism, it leads to some of your greatest strengths, hyper-focus, yeah. pattern recognition, systems thinking. Uh, so by default, you've always just been somebody that's trying to decode what's happening because you didn't have... A sort of natural sense of that. Right. Um, maybe let's take a step back. Like, when did you, when did the first moment of like, oh, maybe this is something I should explore, or maybe I'm not quite um, processing information like other people? Yeah, this was also a really long 
and disjointed process. So I would say the first time I started asking questions was actually back in the 90s. I can remember, um, you know, being probably midway through high school and maybe seeing a news report on something like 60 Minutes. And um, it was talking about this thing that more people were talking about, Asperger's syndrome. And, um, you know, these are, this is what it's like to be someone with Asperger's syndrome. And these are the symptoms and this is how, you know, um, but in that same report, it was made very clear that like, this is something that boys experience. This is something where, you know, it's the, it's the rain man stereotypes. It's, you know, you're obsessed with numbers, it's all of that. And so those kind of features, while untrue, made me think, oh, I guess that's not me. Like everything else you're saying about this feels relevant, but clearly I'm not a boy. And while math, I enjoy it. It's fine. It is not an obsession of mine. So therefore, I guess this isn't me. And, you know, that's what anyone is going to do at 16, I think, is <laughs> latch onto the thing that makes it makes it a negative. Um, so that was then. I think that there have been times, you know, between then and uh, 2021, just last year, um, when, you know, I've asked more questions. I've thought about things differently. I remember when Asperger's was actually taken out of the DSM and replaced just by autism spectrum disorder as a, as a whole big umbrella of things. Um, I remember that very clearly and kind of starting to ask questions again then. I think that was 2013, 2014. Um, but it wasn't until the pandemic hit that I really started to notice how other people's emotional states, other people's way of processing fear, anxiety, group interaction, how different my way of doing those things was from other people. And I started to notice how much it, how much extra work it took for me. Um, and so it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was just that the process of like understanding, okay, this is what someone is feeling right now, or this is how they're relating to this situation. It's a long process. It's, and I got to think through all the steps to be able to do it. Um, and at that time, I was hosting three mastermind groups with about 10 people each in them. And these are all business owners. There's this crazy economic shock and everybody is on edge. Everybody is just dripping with anxiety around whether their business is going to make it or not. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, we had people whose business had never been better thanks to the pandemic yeah. and then like weighing that as a facilitator, I just, I, I lost it in terms of, you know, was exhausted all the time. I would get done with work at the end of the day and literally lose the ability to speak um, to my husband, right? Like the, the most natural relationship that I have in my life, I wasn't able to keep up with because all of my reserves were spent in these social environments during, uh, during the pandemic and then afterward as well. But it wasn't that year um, that I started to ask those questions again. It was really in the, in, sort of in the aftermath of that, R deciding I needed to take a break from facilitating and coaching and really focus on um, just getting well again and, and getting my energy back, my capacity back. Um, so it was March or April of 2021 when um, I started to uh, I, I was listening to some interviews with with women who mentioned sort of in passing that they were autistic. And I was like, oh, OK, interesting. Uh, and then I saw some folks on some women on Twitter that I really respect mentioned that they were autistic. And I was like, oh, oh, interesting. OK. <laughs> And then, you know, it's the it's the sort of like cliche, well, I'll go take a test, right? Like uh, autism in adults assessment, right? Hitting that into Google and, you know, taking a couple tests and all of the tests coming back. No, you're like highly likely to be <laughs> autistic. Um, from there, read some books, talked to my doctor, talked to a therapist, and everyone's like, yeah, you're pretty much describing the prototypical, you know, 
female profile of autism with no intellectual impairment. Um, and, you know, I say all that because there's so many things that, you know, being a woman with uh, being an autistic woman has its own sort of unique story to it. Um, obviously, having no intellectual impairment around autism has its own particular story around it. And those things combined make it so that a lot of folks who think about autism don't think about somebody like me or like the other folks that I was connecting with. Um, but yeah, so anyhow, that was that was uh, early 2021. And for the last year and a half or so, I've just been kind of unpacking all of that and recognizing sometimes just how autistic I am, <laughs> which is a funny thing sometimes. It seems like the one of the biggest misconceptions is that it is a spectrum at like the highest level. And in reality, it's kind of a group of traits. Correct. And then maybe the spectrum is on those traits, right? Right. So if you look at all these different traits, there's probably a hundred different ways it shows up in people, right? Is, yes. is that the better way to think about it? And what are some of those distinct traits? Yeah, great question. So yes, um, autism is not a spectrum from low functioning to high functioning or from mild yeah. to severe, which is... 100% the biggest misconception about what autism spectrum disorder is all about. Um, so, yes, uh, one way to think of it is almost uh, the diagram that I like is sort of a radial um, depiction of the spectrum with different pie pieces being different traits. So uh, sensory, uh, you know, uh, sort of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. My my words are escaping me today. Uh, basically, deficiencies in being able to process sensory stimulus. Um, so, like, for me, sound is a really big one. I have a really hard time concentrating um, or really even just feeling present if there are a lot of sounds around me that, um, I, you know, and I'm trying to concentrate on something else. Um, but for a lot of other people, it's lights. It can be texture. I'm, I'm really picky about clothes, like a lot of autistic people are, and what fabric I wear um, and where the tags are on clothes and things like that. Um, so that's one uh, kind of uh, the social piece, um, which is not to say that autistic people are antisocial or all loners. There are extroverted autistic people. There are introverted autistic people. Um, there are people with deep relationships and people with not a lot of deep relationships. But um, but there are definitely differences when it comes to social relations. Uh Kind of awareness of emotions is another one. Uh, my husband and I were just talking about this one uh, yesterday that, you know, the way I feel an emotion to me does not register as an emotion, as a feeling. I have a hard time understanding what's going on inside my body. Um, and, and that's a pretty common thing among autistic people. Um, another big one that is very strange for me, um, but it's very common, uh, is delays in speech processing. So basically, you know, hearing language, it takes me longer to process what someone has said than it does a, a non-autistic person typically. Um, and that can be difficult for me because I have a reputation for being really quick on my feet, uh, being good in an interview, you know, all of these things that rely on speech processing. But it is, but I, I can see, uh, or I can, I notice when something doesn't jive. And I also notice when, you know, like after a conversation like this, I am on Hype, you know, I am hyper focused on what you're saying, how you're saying it, making sure that I'm processing it as much as I can in real time. And so at the end of this, I will be very tired, which is fine, um, but it's a good thing to know. So that's a few of the different um, traits around autism. And, um, and yeah, it, everyone experiences those traits differently. If you know one autistic person, you know one autistic person is, is typically um, yeah. what's said. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Is, 
Has the shift to video been good or harder for you? So much harder. (laughs) So much harder because, um, oh man, for so many reasons. So um, eye contact, for one, is difficult. That's another uh, very typical autistic trait. So in some ways, I'm good at eye contact online in that I am not actually looking at your eyes, right? I'm looking at the camera. (laughs) The camera. (laughs) So I have an out. Um, But when I'm listening to you or when I'm thinking, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm looking up here. And what I'm, I'm pointing up for, for listeners. And so that's something that has been strange. Also, like you, even though you can see someone on camera and your brain thinks, I know what's going on with this person, you miss out on so much physical context. And so much of what we communicate is in how we are presenting our thoughts or information. Um, and so we miss out on that on Zoom. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's, you know, not optimal, but it's fine. For me, it means my brain is working even harder. And then the other thing about video that has been really difficult for me is that I'm hyper-conscious of my own body language. And so I know that I, you know, I'm kind of performing with my face. I'm performing with my hands. I'm performing in my uh, just my general stature in, ter- in front of the camera. And um, because I can see it, I'm extra vigilant of it. Like it's something I'm always vigilant of, but I'm extra vigilant because I can see it in front of me or in, in the corner of my eye. And I find that turning it off is worse than having it on. <laughs> so if I know you can see me, but I can't see me, that's a problem because I will assume that my face is making really funny uh, mm. faces because it will be. Um, and so it, it's more helpful for me to have the camera on. But yeah, Zoom and just video in general has been a really difficult thing for me over the last 10 years. You talk about uh, autistic masking, which mm-hmm. I think relates to what you're talking about. And especially at work, right? You're you're trying to figure out how to act, how to behave. And it's, it's probably easier running your own thing, right? It's even harder when you're working in the middle of a large organization. I think I always, uh, I was always kind of a weirdo in these big organizations. <laughs> I'm way better of a fit with doing my own thing. But I think it's such an interesting lens because more companies are now becoming aware of what they're terming like neurodivergence, mm-hmm. right? It's just... Um, different traits, different um, tendencies, different deficiencies. And like, I think autism has been this really unique lens, especially because it's been so prevalent in like tech and Mm -hmm. things like software engineering, where companies now have to prioritize this to get those kinds of people. Um, But in some sense, it's also just bringing more awareness to the fact that so many people are masking to some degree in the workplace um, how have you come to an increased awareness of things like that? So that, there's a lot there. No, no, it's a great question. So masking is something that I have always known that I do, right? I used to call it different yeah. things. Um, when I was working in retail management, I always thought about how that, that when I walked through the door of our store, I was putting a particular hat on and I'd wear that hat until I walked out at the end of the day. Um, and then I'd be exhausted. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was aware that there were different personalities that I put on to fit into different social situations and that sometimes I didn't have the energy to put those different personalities on. Um, what I have learned kind of looking at that uh experience through the lens of autistic masking is how pervasive it is, how immersed I am in that. So that like, again, my husband will say, you know, I want to be the person you don't have to mask around. It's like, well, that's not going to happen because the only time I am not masking is when I'm by myself. Now, that's not true of all autistic people. Some autistic people are much more comfortable with taking that mask off. And maybe there will be a day when I am less cognizant of the when I'm doing less self-monitoring. But 
you know, I know there are certain things that I do, that I say, how I present myself that bother him. Um, and I uh, try to not do those things, right? Well, that's masking. Um, and I don't want to be in a position where I'm constantly annoying him with, you know, clarifying words and, you know, making sure that we have precise, you know, it, it's largely around vocabulary and precision are the things that I <laughs> fixate on that he can't stand. Um, but so, yeah, so masking is something that doesn't just happen at work. It For me, it happens all the time, everywhere. I'm doing it right now, um, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in terms of the workplace, it's a really interesting thing to think about. There's a, a paper um, by some researchers named Amy Pearson and Kieran Rose that talks about how the, the sort of the purpose of masking is to reduce external consequences. And so that in the workplace can be things like getting passed over for a promotion, uh, getting a bad performance review, um, you know, not being able to speak up in a meeting, um, all those sorts of things that way more than we expect hinge on social uh, interactions so we mask so that the, those things don't happen to us, but at the same time, that creates immense internal consequences. Um, it can create a feeling of self-alienation. It can feel, um, it can create just a, a lack of identity. Uh, you, know, you don't know who you are. Um, and so that's been something that I've been working on a lot. But it's really difficult. I mean, I think there's some, I think for anyone who is masking or code switching, um, in the workplace, it's really difficult to know when it's okay to be a little bit more yourself. Um, and I think even when a workplace says, hey, we want you to be yourself, we want you to bring your whole self, it's like, yeah, you do. Cool. I know intellectually you mean that. But when I do a thing that annoys you, what are you going to remember? Are you going to remember that I'm autistic and that this behavior is is part of who I am? Or are you going to remember that you're annoyed? It's going to be the latter. And I don't fault anyone for that. Um, I would love to see that change. But I think that's the reality in the workplace today. Yeah, this this stuff is so hard to decode, I think. I mean, I used to study organizational culture, right? Mm -hmm. And when I see companies saying things like, bring your whole self to work, I know they're lying. Right. But a, a lot of people take that literally, right? Um, if Like the reality of the workplace is there are certain incentives and you, they're going to promote the, per, the people that are... <laughs> reacting appropriately to those incentives. That's just how a culture works yeah. inside of a company. But in, we're coming to an increasing awareness that large amounts of people perhaps aren't actually understanding that like bring your whole self to work doesn't actually bring mean bring your whole self to work. It basically means bring the self to work that will thrive in this organization. Yes. Otherwise, we'll probably ignore you, not give you a pay raise, or you're going to have to find another job. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Um, yeah, have you had... Um, so how have you changed the way you've worked now? You've talked about um, disclosing to people proactively. Mm -hmm. um, have you made any other adjustments, especially with the people you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have actively dismantled all of my working relationships. Um, not not really, but, you know, the... Uh, uh, in 2017, I really took the business all in on a community model, and we were building this uh, basically social network and support network of small business owners and freelancers. I had a full-time employee. I had a couple of part-time employees, uh, and I was hosting mastermind groups at the same time. And so my work was very people-forward. It was extremely social. And like I said, I knew those kinds of activities tired me out, but I didn't know the real cost of doing that, you know, 40, 50 hours a week. Um, so I held on uh, for five years. And then at the end of last year, I realized that I needed to shut it down and that I needed to be done with that kind of work. So um, 
It actually ended very positively. Another company took on the community. They took on my full-time employee. um, And I was just sort of allowed to be on my own (laughs) for the first time in five years. Um, And so, yeah, I have recognized that while being social is always going to be part of my work in one way or another, that building my business model around being social was is just not something that I have within my capacity. Um, and I think that that's, that's a, an interesting thing that I have been thinking more and more about as I've been processing all of this, which is that, you know, one of the other stories that I really grew up with around work is you can do anything you set your mind to, right? You can, you have all of this potential to do all these amazing things that you can't even imagine right now. And part of the autism processing and journey for me is recognizing that I have actual limitations and that there's nothing wrong with having limitations and that just because I have a limitation in one place doesn't mean I don't have potential in another. And so kind of right-sizing my expectations, right-sizing what I put myself into in terms of relationships, in terms of um just having to do the things that are difficult for me uh, has been, <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds so silly, right? Like you have limitations, of course you do. But but we live in a culture where that it, it's kind of frowned upon to, to think about having yeah. limitations. So this year I have been 100% devoted to my writing, which includes my podcast. Um, so doing some freelance writing, doing... Um, you know, writing the book, all of those things, and and continuing to produce my newsletter and my podcast, um, and sort of just feeling my way into what is a really different conception of work than what I'd been doing for the previous 13 years. Um, and in a lot of ways, it is taking some huge steps back, right? Like I spent years kind of trying to own a business owner mindset and an entrepreneur mindset and really thinking about building a company and recognizing that, you know what? Okay, I built a company. I don't, I don't want a company. I want great work that I can do without burning out or without burning out as frequently anyway. Um, you know, and I, I have the production agency that I can kind of put the extra ambition and energy into but yeah my work now is so is a lot smaller than it used to be but in a way that actually allows me a greater potential I think does it feel like you can now play this game uh for like 20 years now oh yeah like I could totally just keep writing a newsletter and doing a podcast for the next 20 years absolutely or just write more books like I just desperately want to write the next book that's so amazing. Yeah. Has have those two things, the the writing and creating, been the things that have opened up the most since stepping away from the more socially and like human relationship type work you were doing? Um I am able to pursue it in a different way than I was pursuing it before. So I've been able to take a lot more creative risks with the podcast. So I kind of shifted from a straight up interview format into a narrative format this year. I would have never had the capacity to do that before. Um, Even if I would have had the time, just the mental capacity I wouldn't have had. Um, I'm able to do a lot more research and thinking about ideas that aren't marketable (laughs) uh, than I had before. I've really taken a a shift from being a content marketer who thinks about ideas to being an idea thinker, uh, an idea thinker, an, uh, an idea person who also knows something about content marketing. And that's probably been the biggest change just from a professional standpoint. And it's also the change that I'm constantly just like so grateful <laughs> that I made. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's, it, it just, it has opened a lot more doors. I see a lot more uh, career path possibilities because of that shift. Um, probably even more so than just stepping away from the human relationships piece. What ideas are you most excited about now? Oh, 
Well, uh, on Twitter last week, I announced, uh, I said, I regret to inform you that my new special interest, special interests are a, another autistic thing, uh, is discourse analysis. So right now, what I'm really interested in is like taking little bits of text, whether that's written text or verbal text, and thinking about the ways that those words um, and, and how they're delivered communicate cultural meaning that is not explicitly expressed in those words. Um, so that's what I'm most wow. excited about Love right this. now. Um, and uh, other things, just kind of where we're at um, as an economy with as confusing and mixed up as all of the indicators are, I think we are potentially at some sort of inflection point it may be an inflection point that goes on for years and years without resolving in a particular direction. But, you know, I think we're in a place where people are starting to ask bigger questions about, like, is this economy really working for us? Does managing interest rates this way really work? Uh, should there be a universal basic income? And so I'm really interested in those questions and exploring them from a sort of independent work side as well. I love those questions. Yeah, I, I think it's a, probably a meta question I think a lot about. It's been really interesting to shift from, like I was working in consulting mm -hmm. firms and most of the clients I was working with were like the industrial economy. Yeah. And now I'm sort of doing my own thing working with the internet, which seems so like obvious that this is going to change everything. And you're part of like this tailwind that is carrying you forward. You, I mean, if you're willing to do your own thing these days online, you can sort of just keep showing up and you'll kind of, you'll stumble upon like some success um, eventually if you stay in yeah. the game. Um, but our whole economy, and I write about this in my book, is still built on the idea that like to be a good person in this society, you should pursue a stable full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't quite exist, um, but... Uh, we don't really have an alternative story yet that's emerging. It's We're in this transition. We're in a liminal state, and we don't quite know what's next. Yeah. Yes. And I think there was a long time where I thought what was next is what people like you and I are doing now. But I, But that's not the answer either, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's a good choice. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's a good choice for a lot of people in this moment. And we have to buy our own health insurance. We don't have unemployment insurance. <laughs> it's the, so it's bad. so <laughs> bad. Like all of the things that are tied to employment, you're right. There's the moral component to it. And then there's the like exploitative component to it as well. And so we're trying to get out of the exploitation piece. But in the same, at the same time, then we're missing out on what is considered uh, the stability of a stable, um, you know, 40 hour a week job. So, oh, yes, I mean, I could talk about the economy all day long, but um, yeah, yes to all of that. Have, if you haven't checked, checked out her stuff, uh, Kyla Scanlon, who I think we're going to be interviewing soon. Her stuff is incredible. It's like the most, it's the weirdest, most interesting, most thoughtful um, breakdowns of the economy. Excellent. I'll, I'll send you some. That would be great. Stuff. Um, shout out, shout out to Kyla if she's uh, listening. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I think to be on a path like this, you need to be. And I wonder if like this kind of path is like perfectly suited for somebody that's more neurodivergent. I I tell people that like my unique comfort with hanging out online, making virtual friends. Uh, for hours and not really getting drained by that and like having fun creating things online um, combined with like my sort of uh, if I blow everything up and lose all my money it's like whatever like that's not normal like you shouldn't pursue <laughs> this like I don't think most people would be comfortable on this path um, and part of my awakening on this path is realizing I'm a bit weird um, have yeah have you when did you sort of realize okay this unconventional path is suited for me i mean i think i realized it you know way back in 2009 uh i didn't have all of the information around why i felt that way then 
um, you know, now I'm I'm able to give kind of this bird's eye view analysis um, from you know all sorts of different perspectives of why this is the right fit for me. But I have I have always loved the internet. You know, my parents got our first computer I think in '92. You know, we got on Prodigy from there. We got on American Online from there. You know, so I've yeah, so I have been interneting in one form or another since I was 10 or 11 years old, and it has made a huge impression in my life. Um, I, you know, I wish that, well, there's so many things I wish. I wish in college I would have realized that internet was something that I could incorporate into an idea of what a career could be, but we just... Yeah, Me we too. just weren't thinking that way in 2000 to 2004 uh, yet, at least not in rural central Pennsylvania at a small liberal arts college. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been very early on that the Internet has just clicked for me. I, I love what you said about um, being able to just be online and hang out with people and like it not be a thing. I have often remarked that I am a very hardcore introvert in person, but I am a digital extra. Extrovert. Like, I have zero issue just. Ah, that's such a good Right? Like, I'm just so good at not caring when I get on Twitter. Like, I'll just say whatever. I don't, I don't overthink social media interactions the way I am constantly overthinking in person uh, interactions. Yeah, you talked about this uh, in an essay, which was really cool. You talked about taking up Mm -hmm. space and how. In real life, that's often a heavy yes. lift for you. But online, it's like, I can do this and I feel comfortable doing this. And it gives, um, I mean, given some of the things you're working with around like your, your traits, it's way easier for you to achieve your goals operating digitally. Yeah, there's, I don't know if this is true of more autistic people or if this is just one way that my particular brand of autism comes out, but um one thing that makes me feel a lot more comfortable in a social interaction, online or offline, is knowing that the other person knows some background information about me. Um, and so online, we have a profile page, there's a bio, there's a website link, there's a photo. I know that when you see my tweet, that yeah. information is a click away, right? Um, I know that when someone listens to the podcast and they or lands on the podcast for the very first time and they see there's almost 400 episodes in there and they see the topics that I'm talking about and they see the description I feel really comfortable that if they press play they're not you know they're they kind of know what they're in for right and so the same thing happens in person if I'm speaking at a conference for instance I really prefer to be the opening speaker than the closing speaker because once I've spoken then when people come up and talk to me they're talking to me about my talk and that's background information that makes it feel so much more comfortable as opposed to the one time I think I was a closing speaker I was terrified the entire conference because people would keep coming up to me and I think they expected me to say something but I didn't know what to say and you know and we're having these awkward exchanges in bathrooms and like behind the scenes and I'm just like oh god I just want to talk and like get out of here (laughs) so yeah so that's a that's a particular thing Uh, and as you were as you were kind of asking that I was also thinking back to your previous question about has video made things easier or harder. And I think one of the things that has has changed how I interact online, definitely in terms of social media, is, you know, probably five-ish years ago when many more of the platforms started to prioritize video, I definitely fell, felt um, a little like a fish out of water. You know, I didn't want to do it. I wasn't interested in it. I tried and tried, um, but I have pretty much maintained an either audio only or written text only presence. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a that's just another piece of like how I think through how comfortable it is or not to show up online. Yeah, and how do you think about 
engaging online. You talked about this a little, but you said you can kind of just put stuff out there and you don't really worry about the reaction. I think it's kind of similar how I approach things. It's like, I kind of like put ideas out there and I'm always curious to see like the best, the thing I get most excited about is like when somebody like slightly disagrees, but then like adds on it. Right. And like pushes me a little further. Is that sort of how you think about social media? Yes. And it's actually something that as my profile grew, as my audience grew, I got less of, right. Because when you have a, when you have a reputation with the people who are following along um, and I have, despite you know, all, everything else. I have a very confident speaking voice, a confident writing voice. And so people assume that when I talk, whether that's written or verbally, that what I'm saying must be true. And so I found that my own audience wouldn't push back on me very much. And so I've had to sort of um, seek out that pushback, even if it's a passive pushback by, you know, reading people who disagree with me or by reading things that I just don't know about. Um but yeah, I think that there, this is something that I, that I actually think about often, which is the, the sort of the culture of a particular space online. So one of the things that I love about Twitter is that it is a space in which people are, the discourse is a lot more informal and it is yeah. fine to post something that starts a conversation where maybe you end up in a different place at the end of that conversation. You know, that is a very typical Twitter experience. But someplace like Instagram, where even though maybe the non-curated look is what's hot right now, which is just another form of curation, uh, it is a place where people are thinking about the plan a lot more. And so there I feel less likely to post something informally. I get more nervous before I post something informally. Whereas like Twitter, like, I don't know, I just tweeted something asking if anybody had watched The Anarchists yet and was it just libertarians behaving badly or was there like any discussion of <laughs> actual anarchist politics and, you know, please let me know. <laughs> Like that doesn't that doesn't yeah, bother me at all. There's, yeah, and there's definitely somebody on Twitter that probably has a perfect exactly. response for that too. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I think Twitter is one of these things that has the reputation is the most disconnected from the yes. reality of it. Of course, if you're like only going on there for politics, you're going to get outrage and um, tribe um, tribal stuff. But um, yeah, it, it's a really interesting space for like thinking out loud and finding other people that want to get smarter, think deeper, reflect. Um, yeah, and it, people think that like, and I'm excited to see what you find on like discourse, but people think like disagreement is how you get to better ideas. But often it's kind of a shared excitement about moving in a completely different direction, especially in today's yeah. world where it's like tribal conflicts never get solved. They basically just shift to new conflicts. Right, exactly. Yeah, synthesis is an important part of building new ideas, right? So taking taking what's good from here, taking what's good from there, taking a question from this other place, taking a fact from this other place and saying, okay, well, where does that leave us now? How does that further my knowledge or my insight, my understanding? Um, yeah, and I think Twitter is a phenomenal place <laughs> to do that, um, even if it still then requires backing up and actually thinking through something. Uh, I have found the process of being more open on Twitter and, and more informal on Twitter to be a really helpful um, experience as a thinker. Amazing. Uh yeah, so where can people follow along? Um, your podcast is what works. I checked out a couple of episodes. I really liked the um, the narrative format. It was really cool. I love when people start like producing at a higher level. It like raises the stakes. And I'm like, oh, I need to push myself to create um, more interesting stuff. But yeah, what, the podcast, Twitter, I'll link it up. Uh, where else can people find out about you and maybe plug yeah, your book, of so, course. So um, the place to find my writing on the web is explorewhatworks.com. Um, I produce a weekly newsletter there that goes along with the podcast. And um, uh, you can find the book there as well. It's explorewhatworks.com slash book. 
the book is called What Works, A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting. Um, and it is available uh, for pre-order wherever you buy books. Amazing. Uh, we'll definitely link up to all that. Everyone go follow uh, Tara and excited to see where all your writing and idea seeking. Well, take. thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.